0: Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we look back over the previous year, we see Your faithfulness. We see Your protection and Your provision. And it gives us confidence. It gives us courage as we start out a new year. It reminds us of Your grace. And we commemorate that grace now in giving, not from a sense of compulsion, but from a sense of great gratitude. And we do this to the King of kings and Lord of lords, even Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. Isn't this a wonderful way to start out the year? Beautiful day. The royal family of God assembled, concentrating on the Lord Jesus Christ in a special way in the ritual that we are about to partake of. I can't think of a better way. The ritual that we are about to partake of is known as the communion, the Lord's Supper, and the Eucharist. Yesterday evening, I was in Houston at a Greek restaurant. And when we left, I noticed something over the door. That was what was written over the door. That's Eucharistemi. Sound familiar? Eucharist. And I turned to the guy that was uh, right by the door, and I said, uh, what does that mean? He says, we thank you. Isn't that great? I mean, the Eucharist is very special because in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24, our Lord said, keep doing this, in remembrance of me that word remembrance is usually just passed by but i looked at it a little careful a little more carefully it's anamnesis in the greek that's a n a m n e s i s and it means more than just remember it really means a commemoration it, remains, it means a memorial. It's not that we come at this time and we spend a few minutes partaking of elements and we think, oh yeah, I remember Christ died for me on the cross. Much, much more than that. I think back when I was still in school and played football, at the end of the year they had a banquet, a football banquet. And there were some rituals that went on then. It meant a lot to the players. They gave out trophies for uh, the best lineman and the best uh, back. And what made those trophies so meaningful was that it was only the players who voted on this. And if you were there and you didn't know the team, you didn't know the players, be kind of boring. But if you knew them, if you went through the season, if you saw them in action, it would be very meaningful to you. And that's the same way with the Eucharist. It really depends on your relationship with the Lord. Only you know what that can be. For many, it's just, well, we do this sometimes. The Bible tells us to do it. I don't particularly like the wafer. It's pretty tasteless. Hard to swallow. It's hard for me because when I try to swallow it and then speak, it's kind of gets stuck sometimes. But this is so minimal in the symbolism that is embodied in the Eucharist. And so when we think of the Eucharist, we think of um, the capacity. How well do we know our Lord? That's going to determine how meaningful this is for you. Because when we pass out the elements, we are all together as a unit focusing on our Lord. I don't know about you, but I say thank you, thank you, I don't know how many times. Oh, by the way, I forgot to show you. And I told you, but here it is. We thank you. When he said that, knowing that we were going to have the Eucharist the next morning, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And it was the way he said it, because he didn't just tell me in a sense of what the word meant. He was telling me, we thank you. We thank you for your patronage. And in a small way, uh, it it is that way for us, thanking for thanking the Lord for what He has done for us. And then I started thinking about, it's one thing to say we need to be close to the Lord, it's quite another to demonstrate and to portray how that comes about. And the Lord didn't leave us clueless. He gives us many passages about how this can be special to you. And I thought I'd put some of those on the board for you. Here's a few. Matthew 4.4 It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. We need to remember that. How often do we feed our bodies? Every day. Maybe last night we might have kind of overdone it some. I'm not talking about imbibing. I'm talking about the food. Wouldn't it be wonder if we were eager to feed on the word as much as we are when we go before a big banquet and it's just all that food there. You can't hardly resist, can you? That's what the Lord wants our attitude to be towards His Word, because it's your attitude towards your word that reflects your attitude towards Him. It's impossible to be close to the Lord. It's impossible for this memorial to be special to you if you have had a cavalier, don't give a hoot attitude about the Word the previous year, the year we just had. Second Peter 3.18 Grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. You see, grace is not stagnant. We can grow in grace. I don't know about you. I love grace. I need a lot of grace. And the fact that it can grow is just stupendous news for me. But whether it grows, you're always going to get a certain measure of grace. We call it logistical grace. That's what I wanted you to focus on during the offertory prayer of what God has done for you. All the blessings, all the times He's come through to get you to the point that you can be here. You're wearing clothes. You look like you're in pretty good health. I think we're all well fed. All the logistics that were necessary came from God. In the book of James it says every Good thing and every perfect gift comes from the God of lights. Hebrews 10, chapter 24, verse 25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembly together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do you know that your presence here is an encouragement to others? Do you know the zeal that you have is contagious to others? And unfortunately, that's a two-edged sword. If you're a mediocre, well, dragging along type believer, that's contagious also. But how do we do that? Not forsaking the assembling together. This is for the study of God's Word, for worship, for fellowship. Fellowship is not a bad word. We are fellowshipping in the Word together right now at the highest level when we're taking communion. You might notice that those are all imperatives too. They're not suggestions. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. Thy words were found, and I ate them, and thy words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. I have been called by thy name, O Lord. 2 Timothy 2.15 Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I like that. That's the King James Version, by the way. The Greek word there for study is spoudazo. Usually when I say it, I say it like the meaning Spudazzo. It's not a dull word. I spit just then when I said that. Did y'all see that? Huh? That's okay. Um did I spit on myself? That's okay. God doesn't mind if you spit in zeal when you're talking about Him. That's what the this, this study. Now, of course, we know that this doesn't mean that we have to study to show ourselves approved in order to get into heaven. We're way past that. We know our ticket to heaven is guaranteed. Is it not? Absolutely. We're talking about getting our grace to grow by exploiting it. The more you exploit God's grace the more you have. You can't outgive God. Try it. Uh-oh, but we have something here. Work, man. Sounds like work is involved. Those that have been coming on weekdays and the James series sees how important it is to rightly divide the Word of Truth, especially when it comes to work. Needeth not to be ashamed. How many how many of you like to be ashamed? How would you like to be ashamed in front of about a zillion people? Of course, I'm talking about the judgment seat of Christ. You're going to be there. I assume you are all believers, so you should be mindful of that now. The decisions you make now is going to determine whether you're going to have shame or whether you're going to be exalting, deliriously happy. Rewarded and decorated. Second Timothy three sixteen through seventeen. Notice this, and you can remember this. Most of you remember John three sixteen, right? Both of these are in Second Timothy, and the one about study is one chapter and one verse less than John three sixteen. It's Second Timothy two fifteen. Now, that might seem, seem odd, but I can remember it that way. Maybe you can. And 2 Timothy 3.16 is the same as John 3.16. I'm just trying to give you a reference point because I've been talking to you all and you, well, I just don't know addresses and I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to help you. All Scripture is what God breathed. Your translation will say inspired, but new theonoustos. God, as it were, breathe His Word into those writers of Scripture. And it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. Oh, but we don't like reproof and correction. But you need it. I need it. For instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be not really perfect, means completed. That comes from, That's probably the word teleo. comes from teleos, which means something that is uh, uh, finished or completed, thoroughly furnished into what? All good works. How many of you automatically jump to James when I say it works? Those that have been coming, we've been about a month and a half, maybe two months in James, haven't we? Boy, have we worked over work. Philippians 3, 7 through 8. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted lost for the sake of Christ. For more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered and lost the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, which is a euphemism, in order that I may gain Christ. Did Paul not have Christ when he wrote this? He did, didn't he? He's talking about gaining Christ in a very special way. Luke 14:26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. What is Christ saying there? He's not advocating that you hate your family. But He's saying when it comes to comparing our family relationships with our relationship with Him, it can be considered as hate. That is a very strong relationship. And there is a connection between you making decisions to take in that Word over and over and over. The more you take in the Word, the closer you are to Him. The closer you are to Him, the more special this is. The more you look forward to it. And when we all do that together as the body of Christ, I believe the angels sing. And that's what we have the honor and privilege of doing this morning. When you partake of this bread and this cup, it gives you an opportunity to to publicly display your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. No one or nothing else. Everything rides on Him and who He says He is and what He has done for us. I love to do that. I think it would be better. Of course, it wouldn't be too safe, but we got out here between the two highways on 290 we did it out there so everybody could see. There are two elements here. We have the the bread which is representative of Christ's sinless body. There's a, there's a large gap from the birth of Christ till the time He's about 12 or 13 years old. But you know that every single day of His life He was tested beyond any measure that we could even come close to understanding. And yet He was without sin. In fact, He had to be born of a virgin even to be qualified to go to the cross. And when we think of, of who He is, And what He did, stepping out of heaven, becoming a lowly man. Not only becoming a man, but going through the most horrendous, agonizing, disgraceful death for us. That's what's in the elements. Of course, the cup represents the work of Christ on the cross. John chapter 19 it says that when Christ right before he died one of the things that he said was tetelestai it is finished and now we receive it as a gift just by simply believing in that account what magnificent grace you don't have to be a believer excuse me a member of country bible church to partake of this, all you have to do is be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're not, what use is it? But we all are required to be in fellowship. That means we, this is such an important time for us that we, we are going to have a moment of silent prayer to make sure there's no sins lurking about that's going to intrude upon our concentration upon our Lord. And then we're set. We're ready to all focus on Him together. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can concentrate on our Lord's humanity, the body that was broken and suffered for us. We pray that you will flood our souls with the doctrines that we have learned concerning Christology. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. It is our custom to retain the bread until all have been served. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. Chastisement of our peace was upon Him. By His stripe we are healed. On that occasion our Lord took the bread. He blessed it. He broke it and said, This is my body that is given for you. Take and eat thereof. Again, Father, we pause to partake of the cup. We think of our Lord's agony and misery on the cross with the physical pain. But then when you imputed our sins to Him, we just can hardly understand it. So we pray that you will flood our souls with the doctrines of soteriology, of our salvation as we partake of the cup. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. It's our custom to retain the cup until all have been served. For we, like sheep, have gone astray, each one to his own way. And He, God the Father, has laid upon Him, God the Son, the iniquity of us all. God demonstrated His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. On that same occasion, our Lord took the cup and said, This is the New Testament. In my blood, take and drink thereof. We will stand and sing hymn number 257. We'll sing it softly on the third verse, crescendo on the last verse. Let us stand as we sing. We're just going to look towards this year thinking about what has happened, what we can anticipate, and we know for for certain that there are going to be a lot of distractions this year. It's an election year, and the cuckoo clocks are already clucking. And the danger is that People, even doctrinal people, people who have a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ and they are studying doctrine, there's a temptation for them to think that there's a solution in some man other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is not. And the solution to the problems of this nation are not political. Oh, we have enough political problems to go around. But that's a symptom. The problem is spiritual. A word that is all but misunderstood today. You can use the word spiritual in about a dozen different uh, connotations. But what we're talking about is depending on doctrine depending on God's promises, depending on His faithfulness. It's going to be a political year. So I have some political verses that might interest you. Proverbs 14, 34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any nation. And I think we have our share of sin and more, don't you? Where's righteousness today? People don't even know what it is. They don't know where it comes from. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 3 through 4. Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore justice is comes out perverted. There's nothing new under the sun. Does this not describe the time that we're in right now? Same time that, same kind of time that Habakkuk was in. Some people are the eternal optimists and think, well, things are going to get better. And they're right. Things are going to get better. They're going to get a lot better. You know what I'm talking about. When Jesus comes back, He is going to set things right and He is the only one that can do it. Listen, this tangled mess that we live in today, no one can unscramble these eggs but our Lord. And He will do it when He comes back. We're assured of that. That's the good news. The bad news is it's going to get much worse before it gets better. And I'm not just talking about the tribulation. We recognize that the tribulation is going to be the worst of time that there ever was. I'm not worried about that. Hope you're not worried about it either. But what can happen is this nation can change overnight. Our standard of living, everything that we can know, It's gone. It's happened in the past. It can happen again. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 16. This is my warning to my people, says the Lord Almighty. Do not listen to these prophets. And you'll notice there I have in brackets politicians. Because you can put politicians here and it fits very nicely. See right here? Do not listen to these prophets. And I'm telling you, do not listen to politicians. Period. They lie. And they lie and they lie. And they will say and do anything to get elected. And once they're elected, they will say and do anything to stay in power. But people believe them. When they prophesy, that would be for us, when the politicians make promises to you, filling you with futile hopes, They are making up everything they say. They do not speak for the Lord. Are y'all writing down these verses? I want you to put them somewhere when it's in the heat of the political storm that you can look at these and calm your soul and remind you who's in charge and what's actually happening. And they are profound professional Liars. Not every one. Not every one of them fit this bill. Very, exceedingly, very few do not. Proverbs 17:4. An evildoer listens to wicked lips. A liar pays attention to a destructive tongue. You know what? If you believe the the lies that are going to be given to you for the next year, the Bible describes you as, what does this say? An evildoer listens to wicked lips. You can put the wicked there and say lying lips. And I can just kind of expand this and say... Instead of wicked or evildoer, a stupid person listens to lying lips of politicians. A liar pays attention to a destructive tongue. Evil liars attract evil followers. We have fools following lying, arrogant fools. For I don't care who you are, if you... Make promises that you can't keep. Promises that go against the laws of divine establishment and God's order. I don't care how many degrees you have. I don't care what your status is. You are a fool. And it's only fools who listen to fools. Exodus eighteen twenty one. Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. I think instead of going and looking at all the propaganda that they have, if you go to the polls, this should be your criteria, shouldn't it? But all I have to say is good luck. And I say that tongue-in-cheek. I know there's no such thing as luck. Are we reduced to what people say? Well, I just have to choose the lesser of two evils. What do you get when you choose the lesser of two evils? There's this one guy that said... uh, his name was Ralph Boyinsky. and people were always unloading on him. They say you're throwing your vote away. You always vote for people who don't have a chance to win. He said, "Well, you know," he says, "I vote for winners who will probably lose, but you vote for losers who will surely win." I thought that was pretty profound. This is a quote from Life, Liberty, and Property. We are compelled to ask how it is that so much corruption, unlawfulness, evil acts, and government encroachment upon individual rights came about in the land. The old common law, along with the rights of life, liberty, and property, have eroded away because the religion of the people has eroded away. Now, I know what you think about religion, but think of it in in a sense. It's saying you're leaving God out of it. Thomas Jefferson said, in questions of power, then let no more be heard of confidence in man, but bind him down from the mischief by the chains of the Constitution. I was thinking about, now how... How can I best prepare my flock for the potential of what can happen this next year? And the Lord answered my, my, my uh, question and my desire. I, got, I hardly ever get this magazine. Isn't this a, I don't know if you can see it. I should have put this on the board. Can you all see that? That lion and lamb. It's called the uh, lamplighter. See that lion? Isn't that a beautiful uh, lion? And the lamb, that's going to happen one of these days. Because see, Jesus Christ is the lion and the lamb. He came the first time as a lamb. He's coming back as a lion. Anyway, there is an article in here. It's one page long. And I I apologize before I even start to read it. And I'm going to read this whole page. I'm not the best reader in the world. And I tried my best to cut something out to make it shorter. It's too good. I couldn't cut anything out. So try to bear with me as I read this. Don't grade me on my reading, but listen to the content. And I think it might strike a chord. It's written by Dr. David R. Reagan. Some of you have heard of him before. I believe we are witnessing the collapse of Western civilization. The evidence is all around us. There is increasing violence and immorality, and all of it is rooted in the increasing apostasy within the church. The church has gotten in bed with the world, and the Christian values that have served as bedrock foundations of Western civilization have eroded to the point that we are now practicing abortion on demand, celebrating sexual perversion, and reveling in blasphemous entertainment. As the late Steve Allen summed it up, in America today, we have Bulgarians entertaining barbarians. We have demanded that our society be separated from religion. We have kicked God out of our schools. And then we scratch our heads in wonderment when teenagers kill each other over tennis shoes. Terrible riots we have been witnessing lately in England are a preview of what is on the horizon here in the States. The British are running ahead of us in their cultural decline for two reasons. First, the Church of England surrendered to the heresies of the German school of higher criticism some 50 years ago before the apostate attitude of philosophy destroyed the mainline Protestant denominations here in America. Second, the British instituted full-fledged socialism immediately after World War II, creating a welfare society that destroyed the values of hard work and individual responsibility. The British are now reaping the harvest of turning their backs on God and surrendering their freedoms for government security. That's all in quotation marks. Spiritually, as the Church of England began to teach that the Bible is not the Word of God but is instead man's search for God and is therefore full of myth, myth, legend, and superstition, people lost interest. Listen to this. This is is amazing. Today, only 7% of Britons go to church. And that's at the maximum and most of them are attending churches that died spiritually long ago. Churches across England are being turned into theaters, bars, and Muslim mosques. Moral values and essentials to civilized society are no longer being passed from one generation to another. The payoff of socialism is that a whole generation has Grown-up expecting the government to supply all their needs. The problem with socialism, as Margaret Thatcher, you tell them, Margaret, once said, is that sooner or later you run out of other people's money. The socialist economy of England is bankrupt, and the people are now being told that they must assume responsibility for supplying their own needs, like paying tuition to go to college. The masses are responding with blind rage, and since they have been devoid of moral values, they see no problem in burning and looting to acquire what is, in quotation marks, rightfully theirs. In a recent issue of the Southwest Christian Church newspaper, the Southeast Outlook, There was an interview with a former editor of the newspaper who is now a missionary to England with Young Life. Her name is Nini Hammond. When she asked, what do you believe is behind this rebellion, her response was as follows. Two words, godlessness and socialism. British society has been influenced by historical Christian thinking, but given the Statistics of church attendance, it's likely that the overwhelming majority of the population today has never even met a Christian. Did you hear that? People in England can live their lives and never meet a Christian. Like the rest of Western Europe, England has been thoroughly evangelized, thoroughly churched, and has thoroughly rejected Christianity. The Brits have filled the void of godlessness in their lives with a nanny government and rules, 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 and rules. England is the most highly regulated society on the planet. Regulations govern every facet of human existence. The Brits seem to believe that if they just pass enough laws that they can control the evil around them. The riots are evidence that it's not working. One-fifth of all British children are raised in homes in which no adult has a job where they've never seen anybody get up, get dressed, and go to work. One-tenth of the adult population has has not done a day's work since Tony Blair took office in 1997. We feel all around us a seething anger just under the surface among the quote, entitled portion of society, end of quote. Government was supposed to fill the God-shaped hole in their lives, but it didn't. Government was supposed to solve all their problems, but it hasn't. Far from it. The United Kingdom has the highest drug use in Europe, the highest incidence of sexually transmitted diseases, the highest number of single mothers, and the highest abortion rate. Listen to this next one carefully or you'll miss it. Marriage is all but defunct except for William and Kate, gays and Muslims. And I I was found that Will and Kate were cohabiting before they got married anyway. What kind of message is that for royal family on the young people? In that kind of spiritual drought, it doesn't take much of a spark to set off a fire. We, that's the end of her quote, by the way, we are traveling fast down the same path as the British. Increasingly, Americans are thumbing their noses at God while demanding that the government provide them with care from the cradle to the grave. Spiritual apostasy combined with economic socialism is a deadly mixture. It will kill any society, no matter how great it may be or how great it thinks it is. The barbarians are not at our gates. They are already within the citadel. They are shaking their fists at God while crying out for government to come to their rescue. The result will be the collapse of society upon itself. And then he ends... Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. I thought that was worth reading it in total. So, what lies ahead? We don't know. That old cliche. We don't know the future, but we know the one who holds the future. Even though it's a cliché, it is true. The testing that will take place in this following year could be more than any of us has ever faced. Certainly there is going to be more distraction. And we are going to have to keep our purpose and our cause and our priorities absolutely strong and straight. For if we let go, we will be swept away with the masses of hysteria, we will be afraid. We will be undone. We will be part of the problem rather than part of the solution. The darker it gets, the brighter a candle grows, doesn't it? There's great opportunity for us during this coming year to stay the course, to demonstrate to everyone that our God is faithful, He is omnipotent, He is omniscient, And He never leaves us and He never forsakes us. You will not be able to hold on to that if you don't make God a priority by making His Word a priority. And every time any of you, me included, decide that something else is more important than taking in God's Word, to that degree we are marginalized, we are minimized, and... Could very easily become a casualty in the ongoing conflict that we call the angelic conflict. But we have no reason to despair. God has given us weapons that are as divine dynamite. Remember that? And we can, this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, by the way, remember? And we can bring down satanic fortresses when they're at their height. We can do that. If we are prepared, spiritually prepared, if we keep faith rest right here, right in our consciousness, and we're depending on God's promises, and we know what to say when we come in contact with people who are lost, who have, who have bought the lie, and God will give us opportunity, and He will shine through us. That's what's on our plate for this coming year. And it's your decisions that are going to make it or break it. It it matters not what happens to this nation. It matters not what happens on the geopolitical scene. The battle is right between your ears. It's in your soul. God is going to acknowledge, reward, and commend those who trust Him. And who truly love him. I'd like everyone please to bow your heads. Jesus Christ has already won the strategic victory over Satan and his minions. We don't have to fret. We don't have to worry what's in the future, especially with regards to eternity. Because Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He went to the cross on your behalf and my behalf. He took care of the sin problem, and now He offers it to anyone. He offers eternal life to anyone who will trust Him and Him alone for it because He proved death could not hold Him in the grave, in the tomb. He rose. And the good news is that we rise also. You can put that aside. Never be haunted by that idea of what's going to happen to me when I die ever again. You can have the God of the universe on your side. You can depend on His power, His wisdom. And He will glorify you beyond your wildest imagination and mine as well. Simply by accepting the free gift of eternal life by trusting in Christ, in Christ alone. Nothing that you can do is acceptable to God. It's what Christ has already done. And when you make that, when you, make that uh, when you accept Christ, when you recognize that this is true, in that moment you are born again and your ticket to heaven is guaranteed. Heavenly Father, we recognize that time for you isn't the same as it is for us. We stand on the precipice of a new year. But it's just another day. You are still in control. You still have given us volition. We will still make decisions. And we pray that we will make them better than next year. Anyone who makes a resolution that they're going to now take doctrine in more is already in spiritual trouble. There should be no battle. Priority, if you are number one, means that we will take it in. We have to or else we'll, we'll, we'll die. We'll, we'll be casualties. We thank You for Your grace. We thank You for this opportunity, this special time that we had to focus on our Lord. And we thank You for being with us now and forever. For we pray it in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.